my name is Deborah Hamilton, and welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This podcast seeks to define and explain this important question from multiple points of view and disciplines. We will interview owners, breeders, caregivers, defenders, advocates, champions, and educators. The mission of this podcast is to seek and foster collaborative conversations so that every point of view feels heard, acknowledged, and appreciated. I look forward to your joining us on this journey toward a better understanding of similar and divergent points of view. It is possible to have an impossible conversation. It starts with listening first. I'm so glad you're here listening in with me. Now let's get started. I'm here today with my dear friend, no relative, but wish she was, Nadine Hamilton, Dr. Nadine Hamilton. She's a psychologist who runs a program in Australia of all places, so you can imagine the time difference we're talking on right now. She runs Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet, a group that helps people understand the stress under which veterinarians work and help veterinarians manage that stress. She's actually got a best-selling book called Coping with Stress and Burnout as a Veterinarian. And I'm so honored to have her here. It's two different times, believe me, everyone who's listening, but we are well into uh, getting our juices rolling so that this podcast will be wonderful. Nadine, thank you so much for coming. Thanks, Deborah. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. And I know everyone's going to love your accent because we all love English and Australian accents. So I'm so glad. Oh, I that... can do both. <laughs> so Nadine, <laughs> tell us, why do pets matter to you? To me, they're, well, they're part of our family. You know, they are our family members. They just, they're the, the missing link, really. You know, we've got um, a beautiful Labrador called Jenna, who's sort of semi-famous on Instagram. And our two cats, we've got a Burmese called Ozzy, after Ozzy Osbourne, and uh, a Burman called Panda. And we, I guess we've always had cats and dogs. I grew up with with Lassie kind of dog, a, a rough collie back in the UK. So I've always had that affinity with animals. So I don't really know what life's like without animals other than, you know, when one's passed and we're waiting to get a new pet and just feeling empty and lost, you know? So for me, they're, they're part of that family and they're an integral part of that family. Just like the, the love, the comfort, the security, the loyalty, maybe not so much with the cats. <laughs> they could take you or leave you, I think. Definitely the dog, um, but just from that well-being perspective as well. You know, I mean, they've, they've shown with you know animal-assisted therapy the benefits of having animals with helping with that recovery and helping reduce anxiety. And you know, there's so many benefits to having pets in your family. And I've always loved animals. I've grown up with animals. So to me, they really matter. They're, they're really important. And sometimes we are the voice for them because they don't have a voice of their own. So. You know, and they, they deserve it. They just, they're beautiful. I love them. I, you know, I can't agree with you more because my life seemed so empty while my dogs were away for a while while I moved and now they're back. And you commented while we were chatting before this podcast, oh, you've got the dogs. I said, yes. And, and they're both sound asleep right here. So it really does give you a sense of grounding when you have your pets with you. Now Absolutely. I know that the Jenna is famous on Instagram, but she's also famous because she is a therapy dog. 
Yeah, she was. She, she was a therapy dog when I had my private practice many years ago, and we ran a well-being program, which ended up being the pilot program for my doctoral research. Um, but we actually. Um, we're researching the benefits of animal assisted therapy. So we had Jenna trained to make sure she was suitable and going to be well behaved to become a therapy dog. And I had a girlfriend who had a registered service dog as well. So both of them were the, the therapy dogs or the um, assistance dogs in our program. And they were just absolutely incredible. Like to see Jenna going from this bouncing, excited Labrador in the car and up the lift, you know, to the training room that was just full of beans. And I thought, oh my gosh, how's she going to go? She's going to be too excited. The minute we walked into the training room, she knew that she had a job to do and she was like in work mode. And then they would, the two dogs would literally be lying there like asleep under a chair somewhere and then both gravitate to the same person at the same time and then we would look up at this person because you know catch our attention and the, the person would be there like bawling their eyes out just tears and like the dogs had picked up on it way before we did it's just absolutely incredible and you know obviously the the program was a big success as we knew it would be but just some of the things you know to see Jenna in action and at different events as well just just that um, intuition that they have, that sense that they have when they can pick up when something's not right. They're just amazing. Uh, you know, it's it's so true. And, and sometimes even cats are able to do that because my son uh, has a cat and she is always all over him when he needs it. And then, as you said, very aloof when he doesn't. So they're very intuitive as well, especially when Absolutely. you're sick. I think cats will Definitely. stay with you when you're in bed and you're sick. Yes. They will yes, stay with you. So they get it. Yep, they jump up on the bed. They don't want to know you the rest of the time, but if you're sick and lying on bed, they're both on the bed with you. Absolutely. So they, they have a more um, distinct method of therapy as opposed to, you know, yes. just anything else. They're just really cool. So tell us a little bit more about your doctor because I think that's what led you to writing your book. Yes. So um, it started, I guess, as me wanting to be a vet um, as a child, quickly realizing I was way, way, way too queasy and I talked too much in high school. So I failed everything in high school. Um, but really feeling like I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to do something, but obviously being a high school dropout, I didn't think I was ever gonna be able to do anything what I felt was significant. Um, obviously as time progressed and you know when I was when I was at school back in the day there was no such thing as mature age students which we have now so I went back to university and it was right at the start of university when um, I was at a residential school and um, we got the dreaded phone call one day to let us know that one of my cousins back in England where I'm from um, had taken his own life and that was obviously devastating it's a phone call I don't think anyone wants to get but that was a pivotal moment in deciding okay what do I want to do you know I want to be a psychologist I want to help people who are suicidal um, and I spoke to a professor he said you'll change your mind a hundred times before you graduate and he was right I did um, you know I specialized in organizational psychology but I always felt something was missing and um, to cut a long story short it wasn't until I was at our own vets one day and there was a locum vet there who said to me um what do you do for a job and this isn't a conversation i normally have with vets because we don't have time the consults are that busy and i said i was a psychologist and she said oh so you'd be aware of the really high suicide rate 
in vets? And I said, no, I wasn't aware of that. Um, we need to do something about it. So that was the second pivotal moment um, that sort of really led into the research to, to look at why is there such a high suicide rate, you know, in, in our vets? And so that sort of started that journey. Obviously, you know, I'm just cutting the story short here. Um, to well, have you back, you can tell us more about the story. Yeah, the whole story. I was going to say, because we'd be here, we'd be here for like three, three days if I told the whole story. So we were really looking at why, you know, there was this really high suicide rate. And that was where my research led, you know, investigating and looking at the contributing factors and obviously the, the program I developed to, to give them the strategies to cope. So there's, there's endless amounts of research around why, um, but very little that I could find that actually had something proactive to offer them as a solution. And obviously as a psychologist, I was qualified to be able to do that. So um, obviously um, finished my thesis, you know, everything went, went through successfully. Um, and then that was when we decided to publish it and put it into a book form to get this essentially like a self-help psychoeducational resource out there. So for me, you know, it's very hard um, when a lot of vets know that they need that support, but there's so much stigma to reaching out and seeing a psychologist or a counsellor or, you know, other therapists. Or even admitting it, admitting your Absolutely. It's Absolutely. that perfectionist thing. Exactly, exactly. So for, for us, it was about, and I, as I say, for, for myself and my publisher, it was around, well, what can we do if we've got a book that someone is more comfortable reading in the privacy of their own home, but it means they can get that understanding and get that support, then so be it. That's better than having no support at all, you know, in our opinion. So that was sort of where the book came from. And essentially, it's an abbreviated version of my doctoral thesis. So we go into the statistics. It's quite confronting, um, you know, about why and the, the rate of suicide, you know, in different countries. Uh, but also at the back of the book, we've got a, a, an abridged version of their training program. It's evidence-based um, training program to actually start giving some of those psychological strategies to be able to get them on the right path to supporting it and getting that, um, yeah, the, the self-help there, you know, because it's so important. And, again, you know, if someone's happier to do that in the privacy of their own home than going and speaking out, then so be it. You know, it's a really good start. So It's so funny. Two things popped out to me. So we've been speaking for years, um, and we know the benefits of helping people who are are struggling, but um, perfectionists, and also having education come to you later in life, because Brene Brown, who is someone we both have spoken about, um, has a, a quote that I absolutely love, which, and I hope I get it right, um, if, if perfection is driving the car, shame is riding shotgun, mm -hmm. and fear is in the back seat. Mm -hmm. Because you're a perfectionist if you're so afraid to fail. And sometimes you'll wait and not put something forward because you're so afraid to fail. And we only learn by failing. We only learn by mistakes we make because if we're a perfectionist, we don't, we don't exercise that, that ability to grow unless we enable ourselves to take that step forward. But people are so 
filled with shame if they don't get good grades, especially veterinarians. Veterinarians are some of the most high achieving people who go to school. Um, And then the fear of losing a job or doing something wrong is so great. And it's it's interesting. Most people have no idea um, that you help people who are in a group that is highly suicidal, which is interesting. And the second piece is that Brene Brown didn't finish her doctorate until she was, well, she didn't go back to school and finish college until she was 29. So I think when you're older, there's this big push here in the United States, probably as well as in Australia to, you know, get through school quickly. However, sometimes we need that time off to really figure out what it is we want to do. Absolutely. Let's go back a little bit about that shame and fear, because I think, being a perfectionist is fabulous, except that I think it's underpined by the fear of, of making a mistake. Mm, absolutely. And really, I mean, and I've had a lot of vets who I would consider, I mean, they're colleagues, but I would consider a lot of them friends who have reached out and said, you know, we're, we're not used to failure. We're not taught how to fail. And, you know, particularly here in Australia, I mean, they've, the criteria has shifted a little bit as in getting entry into university, but typically it was the best of the best would get accepted. Like you had to be the best of the best, you know, the um, here in, in Queensland where I live, it was called an OP score. And like one is the highest score. It was virtually, you know, you had to be, you know, in the top, whatever 90 to hundred percent or something. So you had to have this OP score of one just to get accepted into vet school. So anything less than that and it wasn't, wasn't okay basically um so then they're in vet school and it's like you know you have to do this you've got to get you know certain percentage on your exams otherwise you're going to fail so there's this whole perception going through exactly about you have to perform you have to perform and then the competition um you know it's in there so again it's the best of the best that are getting through and successfully graduating and then when it comes to working in you know practice out in the real world it's like, well, what do I do? I've got to make these decisions on my own. What, you know, if I have to reach out and get support, then that means I'm not coping, which means I'm not perfect. You know, so it comes back again to, to that, to sort of bite them on the <laughs> rear end, I guess, um, you know, from that perspective. So it's just this constant battle. And it's like, well, there's no such thing as perfection, you know, because what I think is perfect, you may not and vice versa. It's, it's like sort of saying what's normal. What's normal for one person isn't for the next. And how can you possibly be 100% perfect and not fail at anything? It's just not realistic. And, you know, that's one of the contributing factors to their high rate of suicide is those unrealistic expectations that not only that their clients put on them, but also that they put on themselves, you know, that they have to always perform. They're not allowed to make mistakes. Like they're still human, you know, and our medical doctors, they make mistakes you know, so why is there this big push and this expectation on our vet staff that they have to be perfect 100% of the time? You know, and a lot of that is self-inflicted. Absolutely. And, and you and I have met and talked over an article that you wrote that had to do with how to cope with conflict with your clients, because it is you know, not only do you have to be perfect in diagnosis and in taking in all the information that you get from your pets to make a diagnosis, but also um, being able to cope with the emotions that come in the room with the pet, because we can have the best and brightest and smartest clients in the universe. But if something is wrong with their pet or happens to their pet, either before they get to the vet or as they're at the vet, there is 
emotion driving that boat. And there's really, you have to have the skills to cope with that. So pets do matter. And that's, I think, why the emotion that runs that conversation on both sides is, is so difficult to cope with because the pet owner wants to know what you did, why you did it, how did you do this? My dog ended up injured or sick or whatever, maybe at your hand, maybe not, um, or you weren't able to help them. And then the veterinarians, you know, their emotions are high because they're doing the best they can. They don't know what else to do. They, they likely went for second opinions as well because most of them do. But this emotion that drives the boat is often driven by the fact that pets matter so much. Absolutely. And then you get the other side of it, you know, from being so compassionate all the time. You know, and I often say that vets um, and, and the nurses and um, I guess predominantly in the US are technicians. Um, over here, we're probably more vet nurse dominant than, than technicians. And I think it's the, the opposite there. But um, is the compassion fatigue where typically, you know, as a therapist or as a psychologist myself, if I'm working with a client, you know, certainly I have that compassion, but I'm, it's one-on-one, it's me as a human to my client who's a human. But with our vet staff and vet professionals, they, they have the human component, so the owner or the carer of the animal, plus they have the compassion towards the animal. So they get a double whammy, you know, so they're like getting this double hit. And a lot of the vets get into vet medicine because they don't want to deal with humans. Um, but without that realisation, and I've had vets actually say this to me, you know, we, don't, we just don't think twice about, but hang on, who's going to be bringing those animals to us or who's looking after them? You know, they, they've still got to have that human component, you know, and that's where a lot of that conflict comes into it. But that compassion fatigue is something, the compassion is something that they do very, very well, which is why compassion fatigue is high on the list of contributing factors for the high burnout and suicide. But then interesting, there's, there's research that's shown that they're not always high in empathy. So they're high in compassion, but not in empathy. And for me, I always sort of thought, don't they go hand in hand? But then I can, you know, easily see it now that you can be compassionate without being empathic. And, you know, one suggestion that, um, for that that came out that uh, when I was talking with someone about it and they said but maybe that's a protective mechanism you know you're so used to being so compassionate so you you learn to sort of be compassionate without the empathy because that then can add another layer of you know the coping and the stress you know to what's already going on so it's you know it's a really tough job that I don't think they always get the credit that they deserve well, it's interesting you brought that up because um, our our mutual um, mentor, Brene Brown, talks all the time about empathy and how to have empathy. And compassion is different than empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and for veterinarians, it is it would be hard to put yourself in an empathetic position because then you're thinking about how it felt to you, not that you are you know, talking about, oh, I'm so sorry this has happened to you. You're saying, you know, I get it. Um, Being with an animal who is ill and making a decision that may be difficult for you to make. And I've been there. I've been there with animals, both my own and others. 
giving them the ability to decide what's in the best interests of the pet. And I know when I speak to veterinarians, they often say it's, it's the people who can't pay to care for the dog and I could fix it, except they don't have the hundred dollars or $200 to pay. And that's crushing. Um, or they want you to take care of a pet who's suffering because they're not able to let it go. And so you're, you know, doing your work and the empathy that, that I think that might be the shield because when you can't pay to have the dog treated um, and it's less expensive to maybe put it down, but it's healthy dog otherwise, but you you get hit by a car and you just can't afford it. Um, And if it's older and it really is, it's kidneys are shutting down, everything's going, the animal can't breathe, but the human is so in love with this pet um, and can't let it go that I think those are the hardest times Absolutely. for veterinarians. And those were well, the financial concerns are again, you know, one of the, the top five contributing factors as well, but not only from the aspect of the clients who can't afford the treatment, which often then will result in euthanasia, which is another one of the contributing factors, but also from the opposite end of the scale where you've got the clients who do have the money, but then they have the, expectation that well I've got money that can pay for anything so just fix it perform miracles you know the dog or the cat or the animal might be terminally ill um, but you know just do this miracle cure and just fix the animal because I've got the money to pay for it Um, you know so it's that sort of mentality and it puts that pressure on the vet professionals but also then um, what can come into it is that emotional blackmail particularly for the ones who can't afford it so and I've, I've heard stories you know that that my friends and colleagues in the profession have told to me um, and sort of said, oh, well, if you don't put it to sleep, I'm just going to smack it over the head with a lump of four by four. Um, and so they use that, you know, to try and get this treatment for free or, well, you didn't charge me last time. So why are you charging me this time? And they play on those emotions, you know, and the, the vets who typically don't like conflict, and I don't know many people that do like conflict, but they, you know, they're conflict averse, <clears throat> excuse me. And so, then they just put up with it, you know. And so what I want to do is try and empower them to speak up, you know, using that assertive communication, doing the stuff that you do, Deborah, with the conflict resolution, the mediation, to resolve this in an amicable way rather than it just turning into loggerheads and this person has to go at this person and then they retaliate and, you know, it just escalates unnecessarily when they can have these conversations or the conversations that matter, in the words of, you know, my friend Deborah Hamilton. Um, <laughs> see, I do learn. I do listen when you're talking. <laughs> I'm just giving you a plug there. Um, those conversations, but they, they do. And, you know, as you said, you know, a little while ago, at the end of the day, it comes back to this pet and the pet's well-being. You know, and so those clients could be really emotional. They might be abusive or, you know, they might not be as pleasant as they ordinarily are. But a lot of that can be the emotion that's coming into it because they're fearful of what's going to happen. You know, how much is this going to cost? Am I going to be able to afford it? What's going to happen if I can't afford it? I don't want to lose my animal. Will it survive? And all of those things that just sort of add stress. And when we're stressed, we don't always act in the most rational way. I mean, it's, it's no excuse. Yeah, yeah you know, it's, we, we still, we need to still be responsible for our own behaviour, but... I think it's being able to understand, you know, or put yourself without being too empathic and taking it on board, but actually thinking, hey, what's going on for this person? You know, how how might they be feeling without going, how would I feel if I was in their shoes? But really getting that understanding and listening 
to them first, you know, Absolutely. and what's going on. Because we do, we, if someone accuses us, we get defensive and our first response is that retaliation, you know, and that's or not always be. the most helpful. Yeah, it's not always the most helpful thing to do. Absolutely. So when I usually work with veterinarians, it's the last thing they want to do is, is have a conflict conversation. They, um, they want to shut down, as you said, it was perfect. And they want somebody else to take care of what's going on. And that's why we work so well together because it's, it's about providing both a pet owner who doesn't understand, who feels they're being ignored, who feels that somebody did something, and maybe they did, um, and the veterinarian who's doing the best they can, afraid to admit, going back to perfectionism, that something went wrong, and not necessarily learning um, from that experience on both sides of the pet. So here's the pet in the center trying to get the help they need, and they have two humans arguing over yes. that. And, and yeah. it creates um, a no-win situation for the animals exactly. because people just are fearful and set up, for, um, set up for a fight. And my thought is usually your veterinarian is one of your best friends until something goes wrong. Uh, and then not so much. And then the yeah. veterinarian gets gun shy going forward because I'm not going to really have a friend because then if something goes wrong, you know, they're going to take it out on me. There are so many things you brought up between emotion and um, clients being abusive and veterinarians actually um, being abusive in the way that they talk to people, not, you know, calling people names, but rather not necessarily speaking empathetically because mm -hmm. of time constraints of prior experiences uh, of self-protection I think a lot of perfect. it is it is it's yeah. self-protection it's, yes because if there's you know and I've worked with vets who have said that that they've they've shut down emotionally to be able to cope with the job but it affects them not only in work but in their personal lives and their personal relationships so they're emotionless basically because they've just shut it all off and that's not healthy either no. you know so it's finding that balance and helping them to be able to cope with that but also i think you know it's education on so many levels you know educating the community about you might think that this vet is incredibly well paid. The reality is, you know, particularly here in Australia, and new graduates, you know, average salaries between like forty-eight and fifty-two thousand a year. As a new graduate who's done five years of university and is incredibly well qualified, you know, so when people are making those comments, you're just in it for the money. Um, you know, I know a lot of the vets here. One of the, the um, I guess, responses to that is, you know, we we have we are obviously that intelligent that we can get into vet school. If we were in it for the money, we could pick any other occupation that's going to earn us a fortune, but we don't. We pick vet school. So if they were just in it for the money, they'd go and do another, you know, really high-earning profession. They've, they've got the brains for it. They've got the intelligence to do that. But it's not just about the money, but people don't realise that because, you know, they're paying every cent of the treatment. And it might seem expensive, but in comparison to what you know and i know we've had this conversation before deborah but like in australia you know we have our medicare system so you know we pay a, a levy every year and our when we do our tax return but essentially it means that our health care is 
sort of free unless we're going under private cover or, you know, elective surgery, you know, so we can go to a public hospital and the procedures are performed at no cost to us. We can go to see our doctor and we're either bulk billed, so there's no out-of-pocket expense to us, or we pay a fee and then we get a, um, a rebate or a subsidy back from the government. So we're very blessed to have that. But on the other flip side of that is that it sets this perception that, well, if our human medical care is free, of course our animal care seems expensive because we're paying for every cent. How much is it actually costing the government to pay for every Australian citizen or residence, you know, that qualifies for it? their healthcare every year. You know, if we if we had to pay for that, how much would we be paying? I mean, like there you have to pay for your own healthcare, you know, so how much would that be costing you every year as an equivalent to what you would pay at the vets? Well, it's so interesting you brought that up because Wendy Hauser in a prior podcast, 103, I believe, talks about we have insurance here in the United States for our pets. And from what you're saying, I don't know if they have insurance for pets. Yep. In yeah. So, yes. so people bought the insurance for their pets, sort of like paid the tax, you know, yes. for their yep. health care. Yep. This would be less of a conversation. Absolutely. And but veterinarians don't necessarily talk about that mm. as prolifically as they should so that people yep. would be able, you know, you got to get it when exactly. the dog's a puppy. And then, yes, that's right. There's very few policies. Um, I mean, I know for us, like Jenna, our labby, she's just turned 10. Um, you know, once, I think typically over here, once they're nine or over the age of nine, you can't get cover for them um, if, if it's a new policy. And right, right. You know, our, our pet insurance had always been covered under our, our home and contents insurance. And when we changed insurer, obviously that finished and our new insurer didn't offer it. So we were like stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so I did a lot of research and I found one insurer over here who does insure senior pets for accident and illness so we were really really lucky to get that and i sort of thought you know our cats are nine so aussie our, our burmese has just turned nine and panda's seven and i thought oh should we do that they're inside cats and i sort of thought you know they don't go out but they can still get ticks and all sorts of things and exactly they could they could get anything and so i thought i'll look into the premium so i actually got them all insured and then we were none the wiser, had no idea, but Aussie, our Burmese, has literally just been diagnosed with diabetes and he's had complications. He wasn't responding to the treatment, so it turns out that he's got these two conditions going on. He spent four days at the specialist centre, so these are with, like, the, the vet specialists, so he was sort of next level up from our local vet clinic. Um, and all I can say is, thank goodness we had pet insurance because that was a lot of money. And I'm not saying that they were ripping us off at all. Every cent is justified. Um, and for what they did, I mean, they, they've saved his life. I'm convinced that, you know, he wouldn't be here if they hadn't have investigated at the level they did. Um, you know, and they're worth every cent as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I'm not happy that I had to fork out, you know, literally thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, but I'm just really grateful. I think, you know, we've got pet insurance to think that, you know, well, 75% of what we've outlaid will come back fingers crossed are coming back but yeah the, the premiums are expensive and i think that's the other aspect but it's like that's not the vet's fault the vets don't set the premiums but they cop the blame of, for that but if more people had that and if it was more accessible or more affordable for people to 
be able to get pet insurance, then that is one way of alleviating a lot of that financial pressure. Um, like I know, I mean, my, my vet, he's been our vet for 25 years. And um, when Ozzy was diagnosed and I said to him, thank goodness, we've got pet insurance. And it was nearly like the relief on his face. He went, oh, do you? Not because he saw dollar signs. Like the local vet bill was actually really cheap. I actually said, are you sure you've charged me for everything? Because is that all you're charging? Uh, so they're not always as expensive as you think. But just for him to know that he didn't have to have that conversation. I mean, he knew that we would do whatever it took to take care of things. But I think that he knew from our perspective as well that, you know, that this is potentially, particularly when he had the complications, that this is going to be serious stuff, you know, yeah. and at the specialist centre. I mean, as soon as I knew he was going to the specialist centre, I thought this isn't going to be a, you know, $50 job. This is going to be expensive. And, you know, I mean, the, the tests that he had, the care, but, I mean, he was just, he was looked after so well. You know, I mean, and it, it helped that I knew the vets <laughs> that worked there. It didn't, didn't mean I got any bonus money or anything like that, but it just meant that I knew that he was looked after, you know, and I trusted them to look after him and we didn't have to have that pressure of, oh, my goodness, you know, with the, the pet insurance. So I would highly recommend having the pet insurance, absolutely, because you just never know. Like, we couldn't foresee that this was going to happen and, hey, it happened to us, so... Absolutely. And, and that's what Wendy had put, put forward. So if anybody wants to learn more about that, Wendy will be back as well to talk more about pet insurance. But this was a phenomenal firsthand experience explanation for listeners on why maybe having pet insurance um, really helps you understand why pets matter. And the more of us who have insurance, Absolutely. I think the lower the premiums are. So uh, that always works yeah. in our favor as well. Yep. I, we have flown through the time for <laughs> Why Do Pets Matter with Dr. Nadine Hamilton from Australia, who wrote the book, Coping with Stress and Burnout as a Veterinarian. I'm so grateful you're here. You know, I thought of three or four things that we should talk about next time when you come back, even though we both are either at the crack of dawn or at the end of our day. But I think the listeners would really like to hear about how you're helping veterinarians not leave the practice of veterinary medicine because of the pressures that they feel. Because so many people go through school and leave the practice as opposed to, I, I think that's one of the strongest things that, that you bring to the table is giving them the ability to understand that they went through school, learned all of this, and the stress and burnout is causing them to go be a real estate broker or something else. And uh, how you help them stay with the profession that they chose, and, or, or if they move on, move on in a way that really is going to feed their soul. And be okay with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nadine, Dr. Nadine Hamilton, thank you so much for coming. I'm so grateful you were thank here. You. You've been listening to Why Do Pets Matter with host Deborah Hamilton. And I look forward to you coming to see the next podcast or listen to the next podcast in a week. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This is Deborah Hamilton, and this podcast is my passion. Do you have a great guest or idea for a topic you'd like me to explore? Go to my website and click contact at Hamilton Law and Mediation. That's Hamilton Law, L-A-W, and A-N-D, Mediation, M-E-D-I-A-T-I-O-N dot com. Until next week, our pets do matter. This is Deborah Hamilton thanking you for being here.